0: Hello and welcome to Original Soundchat, where video game music is a work of art. On each episode, it's our goal to help you learn about two soundtracks from the world of games, as well as the people, stories, and critical tracks behind them. My name is Joe Devader. And I'm Peter Spasia. We're brought to
1: you by Anonymous Dinosaur and Rhymes with Asia. It's time to appreciate great OSTs and the games that they come from without getting too bogged down in music theory. Up first this week for our two games is 2010's Pokémon Black and White a back-to-basics approach for Generation 5 that told a striking tale of morality and what it means to
0: own those pocket monsters. Following that is the journey of Richter Belmont to once again slay the evil Count Dracula and rescue his lover by teaming up with… a 12-year-old? 1993's Castlevania Rondo of Blood. Ooh, there are castles!
1: There are monsters! There may or may not be
0: birds that fight for you. <laughs> yeah, you got got uh, Unpheasant in Pokemon, and uh, Maria fights by throwing two doves out. <laughs> well,
1: there you go. It's it's perfect. No, it's, it's a great couple of games this week. Um, I think fascinating uh, soundtracks that achieve so much on the platforms that they are on. Joe, how are you doing? What are
0: you playing? What's going on? I've been doing pretty all right. Uh, Me and Matt finally got to sit down and play half of Halo. So I've now played half of a Halo game for the first time in my life. I mean, that's not in preparation for a Smasher piece or anything, is it? (laughs) Oh, God, I wish it was, in a way, because that would would actually be like a breaking thing. Uh, No, we just, we've been meaning to play Halo for a while. And when we tried to do it on PC several times, it just would not let us connect together and do a game. And now that I have an Xbox, and he's borrowing an Xbox for our next Masterpieces game, uh, we just decided to try it on Xbox, and what do you know, it worked! And we played for five hours, and we stopped right before the library, which I'm told is a Ah. level that is well-known. It is an infamous level in that game.
1: I, I hope you're enjoying it. I found it to be a game that's uh, going to a location, shoot some things. Go to a location, shoot some things. I mean, it may start a nice canon overall, but I,
0: I I may or may not have fallen asleep while playing a Halo game once before. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be playing it if I weren't playing it in co-op with Matt. Mm, yeah. uh, I think that has added to the fun of the whole thing astronomically. Like, driving, driving the Warthog Wow, how does it control like that? Why does it control like that? Who thought that was a good idea? But when you're like accidentally driving off of cliffs with a friend, it's just it's it's a lot of fun. It's very funny and also Matt can carry me throughout the game cuz I'm bad at shooters.
1: <laughs> well, let's see. I finished Super Mario Galaxy. Got got that done. That was good. I Played a game with my girlfriend that I'll be talking about next week on the show. Ooh. Tease, tease. And then I got back on my Assassin's Creed garbage and realized I hadn't played Assassin's Creed Origins since I beat it in late 2017. So I did some uh, map cleanup, and then I played the Hidden Ones DLC, and I'm about to start the Curse of the Pharaohs DLC. So... You know, just gearing up for Valhalla when that and every other game comes out in mid-November.
0: So many games! It's like in one stretch of one week, too. Like, both consoles and every game and its mother comes out in that one stretch of November. It's gonna be crazy.
1: Well, let's talk about some composer follow-up news. The composers we talk about on this show, they're still making great things, doing great things, and sometimes their work crosses over with the headlines from the video game industry i think no bigger headline this week than one that broke twitter the announcement that steve and alex from minecraft are the next downloadable fighters for super smash brothers ultimate uh, what a what a big announcement to pair up with the best selling game of all time there will be seven new remixes with this pack but the music is still To be determined, as of uh, this recording, see, tomorrow is when Sakurai is detailing how these characters play. And so maybe next time we'll have more details on who's doing the different arrangements and all that. I know I certainly did not recognize
0: the music that was used for the reveal trailer. Oh, I've put hundreds of hours into Minecraft. I didn't recognize the music that was in the reveal trailer. I am crossing my fingers for this being a backdoor entry for Lena Rain to get some music into Smash. She did the soundtrack for the Nether update, which was the last big update earlier this year that Minecraft got. So here is hoping. Would I prefer Celeste music? Absolutely. Do I have this vague hope in my heart that will not come true that if Lena Rain was already doing a remix for Smash, that they might also just say, why don't we put a Madeline Me costume in and bring in a remix of Reach for the Summit? Sure, cool. but there's no way that'll, I doubt that'll happen. But I'm, I'm hoping that we see some rain stuff. I don't know.
1: Stranger things have happened with you speaking things into existence, so. <laughs> That's true.
0: Meanwhile, uh, The Pathless, which is a game that looks amazing and is Getting music by Austin Wintory releases November 12th for PS5, PS4 on the Epic Games Store, and for Apple Arcade. They, they showed this game off at one of the uh, the State of Plays uh, last month, and it looks real cool. <laughs> like it looks really, really cool. It's an archery game where you like control the game through shooting arrows, essentially. And I'm very excited to give this game a shot.
1: Yeah, it looks really cool. It was something that when it was shown off at the PlayStation event that it was featured at, I was like, Oh, God, this music sounds really good. Oh, uh, yeah, it's Austin Wintry. That makes sense. And it's the team that uh, made Abzu, uh, that giant squid there. So looking forward to that one for sure. I, you know, just another game to stack onto that mid-November.
0: Just, just another one. It's the day before Melody of Memories. <laughs> oh, I didn't even
1: <laughs> realize that one.
0: Oh, oh, so many
1: games. <laughs> going to be a crazy time. Well, not as crazy times as these where Donald Trump has COVID-19 because 2020 is the weird season series finale that keeps on writing new twists, I don't know, but let's talk about video games. Let's talk about Pokémon Black and White. Yes, we are talking about another Pokémon game. We started with Diamond and Pearl in episode 19, then Red and Blue in episode 42 alongside Pokken Tournament, then Pokémon Crystal in episode 55, and just very recently with Pokémon Snap in episode 85. So here we are in episode 89, and we've covered Generation 1, 2, 4, and now 5. Pokémon Black and White was released on September 18th, 2010 in Japan for Nintendo DS. Europe got the game on March 4th, 2011. North America on March 6th, and Australia on March 10th. It is developed by Game Freak and published by the Pokemon Company and Nintendo. It's like every other mainline Pokemon game. It is a Japanese role-playing game with a top-down third-person camera, where as a Pokemon trainer, players battle and collect monsters through random or scripted encounters, and then battle other trainers with those monsters. Uh, This game introduced a seasonal cycle that shifts every month, fully animated Pokemon sprites throughout the battle, rotation and triple battles. There are wild double battle encounters with these dark grass patches, also rustling grass for strong encounters. There are also combination attacks. There's Pokemon musicals as this big gimmick for this generation. A whole bunch of different improvements. But overall, the games take place in the Unova region, or it's also known as Ishu in Japan. And it's inspired by the United States, specifically New York City, where Genichi Masuda, the game's director, went to visit the United States in New York for the launch of Diamond and Pearl. And he's like, oh, that gives me an idea for the next one. Anyway, the player is starting their Pokemon journey with their rivals and friends, Charon and Bianca as Professor Juniper offers them all the choice between a Grass-type Snivy, a Fire-type Tepig, or a Water-type Oshawott. The journey will not be easy, though, as you'll encounter the evil Team Plasma along your way to the Pokémon League. They're a Knights Templar-like group, and their goal is to separate Pokémon from people, claiming that humans are only hindrances to the lives and interests of Pokémon. The player will also occasionally encounter N, the mysterious leader of the organization. Just who is N? What is Team Plasma really up to? And who will prevail in the battle of truth and ideals? Joe, here's where I'll ask you, what are our experiences
0: with Pokemon Black and White? So I'm pretty sure Black and White was the second Pokemon game that I ever played at launch. I'm pretty sure about Black. If I remember correctly, I have vivid memories of Black and White coming out because me and my roommate Ben, before we were roommates, uh, we did a 24 hour live stream, Pokemon themed, leading up to the release of Pokemon Black and White. And that was my first experience doing anything like that. It was weird and tiring. We only did it two other times. Once was a disaster, and the other nobody watched so we kind of just stopped doing it. But I I remember it being a lot of fun, and then I remember playing the game, and I think it's one of the best games in the series, honestly. It's it's really, really up there. I know, I think some people have, like, soured on it in recent years. I don't 100% know why, but I think it's very, very good, and it being the last 2D Pokémon game is... I think also very noteworthy and cool.
1: Yeah, that is a really good point because with Generation 6 and X and Y moving up to that 3DS, that 3D analog stick, that, that did change things for sure. I agree with you. I think this is one of the best in the series. I think I'll still give it to Heart, Gold, Soul, Silver overall. I think we both kind of agree on that one. Mm-hmm. But this is up there. It's up there for sure. And it, it's kind of like, honing down and kind of perfecting the formula didn't really do much as far as like innovation goes but taking it and making it work well i think that's that's the gist of pokemon black and white i got white at launch i was working at toys r us at the time in their games department so i was able to secure my copy and a whole bunch of different knickknacks along the way and then also, I was working on relaunching my web show WTF Pokemon at the time, and that was right alongside uh, Pokemon Black and White in March twenty eleven. There, so uh, a few combination of things there. It's it's a uh, hard to believe that that's three generations in the past now, a decade ago. <laughs> wow, I t- yeah, to say that's all about ten years ago, that's that's really really crazy. Well. Pokemon Black and White was originally announced to be in development on January 29th, 2010, and the titles were revealed as Black and White on April 9th, 2010. The game is meant to be kind of a reset for Pokemon. 156 new creatures were added, and that's like apparently the most that has ever been added in one generation. And I think the big deal that I really appreciate with Black and White that they didn't really Do carrying forward with all these, you know, Gen 6, 7, 8, is that the main game is just those creatures. It's only those 156 that you interact with for the bulk of the main game. The other Pokemon that exist are added in post game events. You can transfer them over with the Poke Transfer little mini game, bring them over from other DS games like Diamond and Pearl and Heart, Gold, Soul, Silver. But having these 156 new creatures be the crux of the main game was specifically designed to evoke feelings of a brand new game where everyone could be on the same level and, quote, old players would not be able to know what is a good Pokemon to use and it would level the playing ground for new players. So I think I've, I've always appreciated that about this game. It may have seemed weird, like, I want to catch a Pikachu.
0: Instead, I'm stuck with this flying squirrel named Emolga. Hey, I like Emolga though. Emolga's cool. It's not Pikachu, obviously, but like I, I, I dig Emolga. Even though Elisa tried real hard to make sure I didn't.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What a pain that gym battle was for sure with Volt switching. Uh, yeah. So it's it's a really, really fun main story on that front, and then. Yeah, the rest of it opens up in the post-game. Because now we, I think we've gotten used to global releases for Pokemon games, you know, you got to kind of remember this was a time where, oh yeah, there were several months in between the Japanese release and the game releasing to the rest of the world. So there was a marketing push after that Japanese release. Even the Thanksgiving Day Parade, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in 2010, had floats of Reshiram and Zekrom, the two box legendaries, uh, alongside the Pikachu there. So, like, they were really starting to push hard. You know, after all, do you remember the names of Sutarja or, as Snivy was formerly known, Smugleaf by fans? Tepig was known as Pokabu Ashawat was Mijumaru. Uh, gosh, I remember Smugleaf. Those were the days Smugleaf. But, yeah, there were certain set reveals to, like, reveal those American names or Western names. And then uh, Professor Araragi, it's like, oh, yeah, it's Professor Juniper, and she's the first woman professor in the mainline series of games. So, like, there was a whole push in the months leading up to the Western releases of this game.
0: I remember Smugleaf, too, yeah. And it's weird to think that Professor Juniper was the first female professor especially considering we would not get another one until the last games Sword and Shield
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. with Mia Magnolia. So just very interesting on that front, but not only that there was also a cease and desist from Nintendo of America concerning the sites of Cerabi and Poke Beach and their coverage of the Japanese version of the game on its launch day in September. Uh, Talking about how, oh, it was harming the brand, and, oh, you must have
0: gotten it from a ROM. And it's like, no, we got it from
1: 2chan in Japan. Turns
0: out Americans can read Japanese if they learn to.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, I'm glad times have changed, and we're now on worldwide releases for the big Pokemon games. At the time, Pokemon Black and White was reviewed very well, with a Metacritic average of 87. It got a perfect score from Famitsu, which was the 15th ever game at the time, and the first Pokemon game to do so. It was a very good refinement, as many critics noted, and it's still seen as one of the best Pokemon games, at the time, of all time, but there were gripes that it didn't innovate as much as expected, and there were also some complaints about some monster designs. People didn't like Gears. Or ice cream cones. And it's like, I don't, did you look at some of those Gen 1 designs?
0: My favorite is people complaining about the gears and people going, that's just a differently shaped Magnemite. What's wrong with you?
1: Yeah, I'm not a fan of uh, those complaints, as you might be able to tell. It's, uh feels a little shallow and just looking for something to complain about. Mm-hmm. Pokemon Black and White are the sixth best-selling DS games of all time. They sold 15.64 million units as of March 2020, behind, actually, Diamond and Pearl's 17.67 million, and those are the fifth best-selling DS games of all time. Highest Pokemon-selling games on DS, though. Hmm. And as far as awards go, you know, Pokemon Black and White, when you're talking about games that launched in 2011 and how our our Western-centric show, like, oh, what kind of awards could be done here? You know, they may have been among the best DS games of the year for 2011. But do note that Pokemon Black and White launched less than a month before the launch of Nintendo 3DS in North America. So when they're talking about like, oh, DS game, well, let's just bundle it with the 3DS games. Let's give it to Super Mario 3D Land. Like that that's the best Nintendo handheld game of the year. Oh, okay. And it's also tough to go up against the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim for best RPG of that year. As far as the legacy of Pokemon Black and White goes, uh, everyone was expecting a Pokemon Grey, a third version, a director's cut. After all, that had been what you do, yellow, crystal, emerald, platinum. No, Pokemon Black 2 and White 2, direct sequels that take place two years later in the story, and they were released in 2012. On DS, you could link with the original games for added bonuses. There is an easy or a challenge mode, and also there would be flashbacks in the story that would connect the two narratives, like what happened in the years in between, which that is pretty neat. A little weird way of connecting to the original game, but still a, a very cool thing to do. And then, of course, Generation 5 has popped up in all sorts of Different things for Nintendo, most notably Unova Pokemon League as a stage in Super Smash Bros. for Wii U and 3DS, carrying over into Ultimate. You get different Gen 5 Pokemon as Pokeballs in Super Smash Bros. I mean, different things like that. So, Gen 5 lives on one way or another. It's obviously not the next one to be uh, remastered, remade, or whatever. That would be Gen 4 Diamond and Pearl if they decide to do that, but uh, I feel like they're games that still hold up today. The composer that we will talk about for Pokemon Black and White is Shota Kageyama. Shota Kageyama was born on August twenty-sixth, 1982 in Hyogo, Japan. He is blood type B. And we actually have some information on Shota Kageyama. When he was four, seeing his kindergarten teacher play piano sparked his desire to learn the instrument, so he started taking lessons. His first composition that he ever did, he did that at age 10 for a piano recital. He says the first CD that he ever bought was a Dragon Quest orchestral concert disc. And so from then on, he had been influenced by video game music. He became personally involved with computer music through a high school club. And he produced and distributed an original CD for the school cultural festival. Apparently, a track on this CD won a prize in a national competition. And it was through that that he started considering composition as a career seriously. So he ended up starting his career as a composer in Yasunori Mitsuda's production company known as Procyon Studio. And he started his career composing for the game Luminous Arc that they created. He then joined Game Freak and started composing a whole bunch of different Pokemon projects starting on Heart Gold and Soul Silver. He did leave Game Freak, though, at the start of 2014 to start a new company called Spica Musica, but he still works with Game Freak occasionally, so still on good terms with them. On the side, he formed his own band, Leseto, for his own compositions here and there. You can follow him on Twitter at Shota Kageyama. So his discography includes Luminous Arc, Pokemon Heart Gold Soul Silver, and Other Pokemon games, Black and White, Black 2 and White 2, X and Y, Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire. He was a guest composer on Pokémon Tournament, composed for Pokemon Duel, Pokemon Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee, Pokemon Masters. Also recently, he's composed for Ninjala, and he will be the head composer, it seems, on the game Pokemon Unite, the collaboration with Tencent there, the Pokemon MOBA. So that seems interesting. I had not heard about that, but you know, digging through his Twitter account, found out those. He has also contributed arrangements to Super Smash Brothers, and we like to highlight when a composer does that. In Brawl, he arranged the title slash ending for Super Mario World, opening from Donkey Kong, Hidden Mountain and Fortress from The Legend of Zelda: A Link to the Past, and Obstacle Course from Yoshi's Island for 3DS and Wii U. He arranged Super Mario Brothers three medley. Ends Castle Medley, he composed and arranged that because that's his original composition, and Quick Man Stage from Mega Man 2. In Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, Termina Field from Majora's Mask, Main Theme, Yoshi's New Island, Battle, Lore Keeper Zinnia from Pokemon Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire, again, also his composition that he also got to arrange for Smash, The Battle at the Summit from Pokemon Sun and Moon, and Hard Man Stage from Mega Man 3. So this was Shota Kageyama's first project as sound director for the game. He was also the primary composer. But other credited composers include Go Ichinose, Hitomi Sato, Junichi Masuda, and Minako Adachi. A few of those we've talked about on the show before. Uh, Go Ichinose was in charge of directing all of the Pokemon cries for the game. And boy, those cries are sure a lot better in <laughs> Generation 5. <laughs> Thank you, Nintendo DS. And Adachi produced all of these sound effects. This soundtrack is pretty notable for Pokemon, and that includes new tracks in battle, uh, one for low health for your own Pokemon, and then also the gym leader taking their last stand with their Pokemon.
0: The only one that does this, too. None of the other games continued this trend, as far as I remember.
1: Which is a shame, because it's really cool. uh, Finding a way to make the doo doo doo-doo, doo-doo, doo into a really intense, dramatic track, and then bringing back the main Pokémon theme for The Last Stand. Uh, it's such a good choice, and that's really a shame that uh, they don't really do that for the other games, just to have totally different tracks for that. But overall, the four-disc soundtrack was released as a super music collection, so you can find it on iTunes and places like that to buy it, but... Uh, probably not spotify just just a thought just a guess
0: nope you are correct
1: <laughs> thanks nintendo <laughs> but this is an amazing soundtrack and if you like how these sound uh, go check out a youtube video called gen 5 music hits really hard i think i've watched this like multiple times this week in preparation just appreciating how good this soundtrack is and then the YouTuber also, like, does different, like, meme edits with it and whatnot. It's, it's really clever, and I do like it a whole lot. So what does this soundtrack that hits really hard sound like? Let's get to the five critical tracks. And we start with Battle Gym Leader. of the battle tracks in the mainline Pokemon games are composed by Junichi Masuda, and this is no exception. Three of the five are composed by him in this critical five. This is my favorite gym leader theme in the whole franchise. It just goes so hard at the beginning. And the drums don't let up throughout the whole piece. When you get that main melody going, you get timpanis going in it and I know they're they're DS midis they're playing off that that sound chip in the DS but you know what they sound pretty good honestly for for this kind of presentation of sound so I'm I'm really a big fan of this song the energy that it has and again this is one where yeah it can fluctuate between those other songs of oh your Pokemon's health is low or the gym leader is down to their last Pokemon, and
0: it just creates a, a good flow of battle for some of these critical pieces. I don't know if I'd put this as my favorite gym leader battle. I think it is definitely in my top five, for sure, uh, which doesn't really like cut it down that much. There's only, like, what, eight of them? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, more or less. But uh, it's it's definitely among among the top tier of them. I think Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphires tops it. I really like Sword and Shields, though I don't know if I'd call Sword and Shields my favorite. You know those those types of things. But this is a really really good song. I think I agree with the timpanis being like a really cool thing that I honestly don't expect to hear from Pokemon tracks very often, uh, especially not in MIDI. To be to be perfectly honest, I mean for me the gym leader battles get real when you get down to their last Pokemon. And the the last stand music plays, and that's yeah, I mean, usually more what I think of in in terms of of black and white. Yeah, and you get to the ba pa da da, da, da da It's it's a great
1: great setup of tracks overall, and to start the energy with this I think is always stuck in my mind for sure. But the battles continue with the antagonists in the game. You're going up against grunts, but even still. This is Battle Team Plasma. Once again, composed by Junichi Masuda. Once again, another piece that goes really hard with its intro, but unfortunately it's not in the clip. But to start that battle and know that you're in a Team Plasma fight, and it's got this offbeat rhythm to it. Like, it has a, another really great energy to it. And I think like that's, that's the gist of if that meme YouTube video with, you know, Gen 5 music hits really hard, that's, it's really giving off that energy, and that it, it really pushes the boundaries probably more than any other Pokemon soundtrack, and that's really why I like this one a whole lot. But, I mean, man, the, the Plasma Grunt fight, really, really great stuff. I'll note for Black and White too, some of these tracks do carry over, but then, like, some instruments get added even more to it, and, like, it kind of overmodulates things a little bit. I feel like there's a good simplicity in a way when you compare the two for the original black and white's music. Uh, and that's, I feel like this is the same thing with, uh, with the team plasma
0: fight, like better, more distilled at its fundamentals here. I think this might be my favorite battle theme in the game. Actually, it's definitely up there as one of my favorite like villain team battles for sure. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's this team galactic is up there, the gen two rocket theme like those are all pretty good, but this one I think it's the off it's the rhythm like you pointed out it's it's just such a neat rhythm to sort of drum along to I think the team plasma as a as a team is really cool. I think they had a lot more potential than was ultimately explored yeah yeah hmm in the game uh i think they could have done a lot more with with them than they ended up doing but yeah this is probably my favorite of the themes and you're right the intro uh is really good like go look go look it up everybody like like peter said it's not in the clip but like it's a really good intro
1: yeah another one of those ones where we talk about like that little bit that gets you into the battle uh it was, it's so so good an underrated one on the soundtrack that I think may catch some people's attention is number three on their Critical Five. This is Route 10. When you're talking about Route 10, you're getting towards the end of the game. This is the way onto Victory Road, uh, from Opelucid City to Victory Road. And wow, I, I think, honestly, one of the best route themes that Pokémon has ever had. It's such a cool melody, the instruments that are used here with The rhythm guitar, you got the accordion, you got the flute that comes in and makes it so calming. And it may be just because it's like on the the DS sound chip, but really sounds Professor Layton-like if you want to compare it to another game.
0: Oh, 100%.
1: I think a lot of people point out Route 10 from Black and White as one of the sneaky, great route themes that
0: Pokemon has ever had. And the thing is, uh, there are people at Nintendo or elsewhere that agree with you because this is one of the few root themes that's gotten a remix in Smash. And it's really good. (laughs) I will agree with, yeah, it's Layton, And I think this is, because there are a few standout root themes in Pokemon games, but for the most part, I forget most of them. Like the instant you hear them anymore. I think there's like one in Diamond and Pearl that I remember just because it's so disgustingly catchy. But that's that's really it, and this one absolutely like stands out and stands the test of time. It's really, really good, and maybe it is just. I mean, we're both fans of Professor Layton. We like Professor <laughs> Layton music a lot. Maybe that helps it a, a bit. I don't know. I could easily hear this being in like a cutscene during a Layton game. Oh my gosh, yes, it's totally that accordion. Yeah, it's a hundred. It's the accordion one hundred percent. So, shouts out
1: to Shota Kageyama for that composition there. But we get to the battles again, and this is approaching the end game. Number four on the Critical Five is Battle Reshiram Zekrom. Again, it's a battle. It's composed by Junichi Masuda. He's just got that sound. He really doesn't. Boy, it works. Whenever he stops composing battle themes for Pokemon, that's going to be a, a sad, sad day. This one is okay in terms of the different legendary Pokemon battle themes that there have been when you're trying to catch them. But I think this is a good one to include on this list. Uh, the piece really... Goes places throughout uh, the the piece, and you know, a 30 second clip is not enough to tell the full story. And it's just this march like beat that keeps up the pace. It's also a cool way for how it's mixed into the end game of this game, which, um, if you don't remember or or don't know, uh, the way that this game tackled the Elite Four and its end game was super cool and different uh, for example the elite four members all are at the same level and you could pick which order you tackled them in and then it leads to end game things and all that but i feel like this is an important track for this game overall does it stand up compared to some of the other legendary themes throughout pokemon no but still a really good piece
0: This is the first one to do the Elite Four that way, because they've all done it like that since, haven't they? I think so. I believe, like, Sun and Moon I know does. X and Y I'm pretty sure does. Uh, Sword and Shield absolutely does. Ah, so that started in black and white. I've never realized that. Neat. This is a, a cool theme, but I mostly have good memories of it pretty much entirely because this is the best inclusion of a Legendary in the actual end game of any Pokemon game at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess Diamond and Pearl probably gives it a bit of a run for its money, honestly. But the fact that you you have to catch it, that's a little bit of a bummer for some people, but like, you have to catch it. It's the first time that they've ever done that. But then once you do catch it, then you immediately afterwards have the battle with the final boss? Who caught the other one? <laughs> and it's so cool. It's a really, really cool moment. Uh, and this song, that's, that's what I always think about when I, when I hear this song. And also, this song also got a Smash remix and it's very, very cool. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: But let's end the Critical Five with literally the end. Number five is ending. This song usually gets a subtitle and depending on the translation you use, it's sometimes to each future or onward to our own futures. Yeah, the piece starts like that. It starts like the clip that we
0: played. It just goes right away. This is a credits song, not like a, there's no action scene happening in the background of the song. It's credits. It's an incredible credits
1: theme. And I don't think it's ever really recognized for just how good it is. I think it makes you feel like really accomplished for beating this game because the original black and white, like I think it's generally harder than most of the other generations before it. So like, it feels like a pretty good accomplishment to beat
0: this game and it just makes you feel great. Yeah. This is, uh, this is one of the more neat. Credits themes that, that Pokemon has ever had, and I agree. I don't hear people talk about it, like, ever. Like, I forgot about it until we started getting ready to do this show. Uh, and it, it's I, I'm ashamed of myself for that, because this song rules. It's great. Well, if we can bring more attention
1: to this piece through this show, then I'm all for it.
0: We have tracks on the cutting room floor. Joe, you have two? Hit me with them. So... My two tracks. I got one battle theme. Let's start with, uh, battle Sharon and Bianca. This song was composed by junichi masuda it is the rival battle theme a lot of people complain that a lot of the rivals in pokemon nowadays they don't make them like they used to they ain't silver or blue anymore where they are actively antagonistic towards you and don't like you and actually hate your guts and want you to die uh they're they've moved a lot Further towards like it's a friendly rivalry. You're friends. You're having a friendly bout. Uh, and generally I don't mind that too much. I think that's fine. I think complaints about that are a little bit overblown. And I really really dig when the rival battle theme kind of reflects that no this is a friendly battle. This is you are having a battle with a friend. Uh, you guys are having fun doing this etc etc. And this song just has that bouncy, friendly, happy energy to it. I really dig it. It sounds almost closer to the wild Pokemon
1: theme, though, than it does like a- another trainer battle. I just find it interesting. Like it has that kind of bouncy energy to it, but yeah, I'm at least glad it doesn't have the wild Pokemon that
0: doo-wah, doo-wah. Yeah, that weird slide note is. Really exhausting, I think black and white might have one of my least favorite wild Pokemon battle <laughs> themes in the series uh,
1: i'm I'm with you there for sure
0: uh, after that, the thing that I really forget about Gen five whenever I come to it is that it has some really good town themes, like really good, oh yeah, and I think the king of all of them is Nimbasa City. It was actually a tie between this and Driftvale, because Driftvale is also very good. But like this one just it feels like a big city living, baby. Uh, which uh, kind of makes sense. It feels like a big, flashy city that you're walking into, which makes sense for Nimbasa because that's where the Ferris wheel and stuff is. So that's that's why I always uh, remember Nimbasa City. And also again, Elisa tried really hard to make me not like Imolga. Yeah, this just sounds so jazzy. It sounds inspired by Las Vegas. If you want to
1: continue the uh, the U.S. theming a little bit, uh, also shouts out to Castellia
0: and Accumula. Yeah, both of those are also very good. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. I mean, just just great, great themes overall across this soundtrack. My two songs on the cutting room floor. One of mine is an unwavering heart. Depending on the translation, this also is known as Unwavering Emotions. And this really plays, as you might guess, at the game's big emotional moments. Uh, One that really stands out is when Bianca's telling off her overprotective father he just wants her to come and stay home. She says, no, I got to do this for myself. I got to stand up for myself. I don't want to be seen as a, a weak person. And it's just this piano theme that comes out of nowhere and hits you in your feelings. Ah, it, It's just... Uh, how
0: could Pokemon themes have this kind of depth? It's amazing. I can't think of a single other song from any Pokemon game that has this sort of tone to it, honestly. And it's uh, it's not something I expect from, from the series, but I remember when the game first came out and uh, me and Ben were playing it, I remember Ben like specifically commenting on how hard this song hit him, and he was like, "I love this song. This is one of my new favorite songs in Pokemon." It just it gets you, gets you for
1: sure. The other one on my cutting room floor is End's Castle. Overall, when we've talked about songs that have reached Super Smash Brothers from Pokemon Black and White, or Gen 5 overall, I feel like this is another one that is just one of the enduring tracks from this game. We mentioned it with the End's Castle medley that Shota Kageyama composed, and so this is where that comes from. Overall, again, it's just really stressing that it's such a cool mix-up of the Elite Four formula, because this piece takes place after uh, the Elite Four in the continuing endgame, and I think there's just this gothic sound to it that uh, makes me feel a little bit like Castlevania,
0: which, you know, we might talk a little bit about soon. I can hear Castlevania in that, for sure. I could hear Symphony of the Night specifically, maybe a little bit of that. We've said up and down now, like this is one of the coolest end game sequences just in general in Pokemon basically ever. Uh, this I feel like Black and White went a little harder on story than literally any other game in the series. Sure, yeah. I'm a little sad that that experiment seemed to not have led to them wanting to keep that up, but. It's it's a really interesting relic of the time, and if you haven't, if you if you're gonna play like two Pokemon games, maybe don't make this one your first Pokemon game. <laughs> oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, maybe play a different one, any of the others before this. But then go play Black and White, absolutely. If you haven't played it, get into it. Uh, pretty much just for some of the stuff that happens within and and the castle and like that stage in Smash where this song originally played is great it's a cool game and this song is very neat absolutely
1: Uh, a couple ones that even off the cutting room floor but because there's just so many great tracks we've talked about the different city themes also if we were talking about black and white 2 uh shouts out to the colress battle theme and when it comes to this game ends theme Mm -hmm. you mean the the harry potter ripoff theme yes yeah it's very harry potter ripoff very Harry Potter rip off. Just wanted to throw those out there. Go listen to those. Check those out on your own time. What will I never forget about Pokemon Black and White? I remember playing an English translation and uh, having a good time with that before it eventually came out in the United States. And again, memories of working at Toys R Us, doing WTF Pokemon on the side. I was all in with Pokemon at that time, and this hit just right. And, uh, it was great to get a new generation that was, you know, what, 2006, 7-ish was when Diamond and Pearl came out. So there was a good wait for Gen 5. Granted, some of the, the generations since then have come out a little more rapidly, but, uh, there was definitely a, a palpable excitement for this one. And I think it's part of it was with the reset of, New monsters, and that's what you get for this main adventure, and then you get the rest of them brought in.
0: I will never forget doing that 24 hour stream, and then after having not slept for 24 hours, getting up into my car and driving to go pick up the game from GameStop. Uh, I think I slept a little bit before that, so I, I wasn't actually in any danger. But doing that 24 hour stream is probably one of the best early content creation memories I have. Because mm-hmm. I remember, like, we gave the gift of, of showing our friends the Pokemon Christmas Bash for the first time. <laughs> uh, and that's where that started. Squish, squish, squirtle. Yeah. Uh, I remember Ben did a full playthrough of Pokemon Yellow on that on that stream. And just going to pick it up in the morning and knowing that I should sleep, but Pokemon now. <laughs> uh, and and laying in bed and starting black and white for the first time. And, and even, like, I remember being in my father's basement finishing the game when, when I finally did. And just, I don't know, I look very fondly on the days uh, surrounding this game's launch. I should probably replay it sometime. I don't think I have since then. Same.
1: I actually haven't either. <laughs> and if people were wondering, where is Dennis? Dennis is not as good of a theme as you think it is. Just saying. (laughs) I'm just putting my piece out there. All right. Let's transition to our next game. We'll talk about a fan cover, whether it's on OC Remix, YouTube, what have you, wherever it is on the Internet. This cover of Route 10 is done by Joe Bin. And it's a trumpet, piano, and melodica cover. You can hear in the clip he's actually playing trumpet. Sounds pretty good. Really appreciate this one, please enjoy, and we will be right back.
0: Let's talk about monsters of a different sort, shall we? As we dive into Castlevania, Rondo of Blood, which was originally released for the PC Engine on October 29th, 1993 in Japan. If you don't know what the PC Engine is, that's okay. It wasn't successful here. Also, we called it the TurboGrafx-16. Aha! Okay. Uh, Those are the same thing, but it was not successful here at all. So... That's why we never got this game. Like pretty much all Castlevania games, it was developed and published by Konami. It is the 10th game in the Castlevania franchise. This will be the third one that we have brought to this show. Uh, The first time we talked about Castlevania was back in episode 21 when Peter brought Symphony of the Night to the table. That one is the second half of the genre term Metroidvania meaning that it is a sort of open-ended map exploration game. Rondo is a lot closer to the second game that we have covered from the franchise, the original NES game Castlevania, which was covered back in episode 56. Rondo of Blood is a 2D action platformer where the player mainly takes control of Richter Belmont, a descendant of the famous vampire hunting clan. For you see, the year is 1792, and the vampire Dracula has once again been resurrected. When Dracula's servant, the dark wizard Shaft, kidnaps Richter's lover Annette, Richter journeys to the vampire's castle to slay him and save her. Along the way, he can also rescue three other maidens, with the first one being the absolute most important one. Because that first maiden that Richter can rescue is actually a distant relative of his, 12-year-old Maria Renard. Once rescued, Maria actually becomes a playable character. Uh, Maria does not fight using a whip or even using the same sub-weapons as Richter. Instead, she fights using various animals that represent the Chinese Zodiac. She can also double jump, she moves faster than Richter, and can potentially do twice as much damage as Richter, because she uh, instead of using the whip, shoots out two birds that then come back and do damage the whole time they're out. Uh, which means that in a lot of ways, uh, she kind of breaks Rondo of Blood. But the trade-off is that she takes twice as much damage as Richter does. Another addition to the Castlevania series that Rondo of Blood makes is the item crash abilities that allow characters to use a large amount of hearts, which in Castlevania aren't health because God is dead. They are <laughs> ammo for your sub-weapons. You can just use a whole chunk of those and do this big super attack based on whatever sub-weapon they are carrying. So, like, the cross is the Grand Cross, which is the most famous one, where he just, like, goes Super Saiyan, and a billion crosses fly across the screen and kill anything in range. Unlike previous games in the series, Stages in Rondo are untimed, thank God, and many of them actually have multiple exits. That can lead to different stages. Meaning that the game can be rather varied upon replay. Like there are, I think, two or three different routes you can end up taking through the game. And uh, yeah, it's it's just a neat game. There's not much more to say because in the end it kind of just plays like Castlevania. So this is where I will ask, what are our experiences with Rondo of Blood? I've never played it.
1: But it's part of this collection on PS4 with Symphony of the Night. And when it's on sale, it's like it's $6.99 for those two games. And boy, doesn't that look real tempting. And <laughs> I, I, I've had it in my cart multiple times and just had never pulled the trigger, honestly. So that's what I think of, honestly. Uh, but yeah, with Super Smash Brothers recently, Richter being back in the, the spotlight a little bit again. Some of his music being back in the spotlight Uh, Definitely makes me think of that. But I don't know too
0: much about the original game, to be honest. I played it because it was Richter's game for Smasher Pieces. I probably wouldn't have played it otherwise. Uh, I can't say it's a game I will ever go play again. But it's very good. I can admit that. It's really hard. Like, it's balls hard. But it's also still, like, pretty good. And if you can unlock Maria, like, she honestly makes a lot of the game a lot easier. Except for very specific instances where she absolutely does not do that. She actually makes it way harder. Funnily enough, the final boss is not one of those moments. She destroys that... She rips that final boss to shreds. It's definitely worth going back to. I'd honestly say it's the most worth going back to game of the two games on that pack. Uh, Though, honestly, I, I still enjoyed my time with Symphony of the Night, but I think that just in terms of, like, Symphony of the Night is the beginnings of that genre and so it was setting up some stuff that would be improved later whereas rondo is a perfection of what castlevania had been doing for years before that so in general i think it's it's a better overall package but uh yeah it's it's a lot of fun it's got a really really good soundtrack i'm very excited to talk about it unfortunately not a lot of info on the game's development It was well-regarded when it came out, though. Uh, Some critics called it the best game the series had yet seen, and others liked it but were comparing it to Super Castlevania IV. I guess that those two are just generally like, it's one of these two that's the best classic style, Castlevania. Like, There's no real consensus on which one. Some critics even called it potentially one of the greatest side-scrolling platformers of all time. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I think it's definitely up there, especially for the era. My favorite thing though is that this game has had a bizarre relationship with being released in the West until recently. As previously mentioned, Rondo of Blood was a Japan-only title for the PC engine when it first released, and even when it was added to Wii Virtual Console, it was once again a Japan-only release. We technically got it on SNES in 1995 as Castlevania Dracula X. Castlevania Dracula X has a plot that is very similar to Rondo, and it also stars Richter Belmont. But outside of a few shared assets, the game overall features redesigned levels, cuts down on the amount of alternate stages, so there's only two in the entire game, removes Maria as a playable character, and from what I can tell, Castlevania fans consider this a vastly inferior game. Uh, basically, we were told time and time again when we were coming up to Rondo for Smash pieces, like, don't play Dracula X. The SNES game is not the same game. Don't play it. That's not the one. Because I was always under the impression that those were the same game. And I guess they're not. The game in general would go on to be overshadowed, obviously, in 1997, with its direct sequel, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, taking a majority of the franchise in a completely different direction. Uh, Rondo was then given a full remake on the PSP in 2007, titled Castlevania The Dracula X Chronicles. I was not aware of this, probably because it was on PSP, and I've never owned a PSP. Well, I I owned a PSP for a little bit. I think I still do somewhere. Uh, The original game was included as a secret unlockable in this version, making it the first time... That we had ever been given access to the original PC Engine game. Uh, Fun fact, Symphony of the Night is also an unlockable game in that. But now, the easiest way to play Rondo of Blood, like you mentioned, it is packaged with Symphony of the Night in the Castlevania Requiem collection on PlayStation 4. Really wish that would come out on Switch. Don't understand why it hasn't, but whatever. Uh, You should definitely check it out if you end up buying those two games. Like you said, $6.99 has a pretty good price for both of those games. Yeah, don't pay twenty for it, but six ninety is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if twenty is I don't know if I pay twenty for it. I think you're I paid twenty for it because I needed it for a show. <laughs> don't be like me. But uh Rondo of Blood was overall like one of the last big classic Castlevania titles to come out. Uh, Symphony would establish the Egovania portion of the franchise which would largely end up, like, moved to handheld, like, GBA, DS, etc., etc. Meanwhile, like, console titles would attempt to bring Castlevania into 3D. These attempts did not work. (laughs) None of them. The 64 ones are infamously bad. I kind of want to play them at some point to find out how bad. And then you've got Lords of Shadow, which I believe is considered alright, but like crazy derivative and doesn't feel anything like a Castlevania game. But I don't know, again, I've never played that one either, so who knows? Richter and Maria would go on to appear in various other Castlevania games outside of Rondo and Symphony. Richter is an optional boss, and both of them are hidden characters in Castlevania Portrait of Ruin, as well as both of them being downloadable characters in the mobile game Castlevania Harmony of Despair. Maria is a playable character in the Wii fighting game Castlevania Judgment, where her design, like everybody's design in Castlevania Judgment, is bizarre. Like, have you ever seen Maria in Castlevania Judgment?
1: No, I gotta look this up now. So
0: Judgment was a Wii fighting game. I remember the title, but I haven't seen it. All of the characters were designed by the guy who drew Death Note. Oh yeah, you can totally tell. Oh yeah, he did his own redesigns of every single character, and uh, it's kind of infamous for that. Uh, Maria looks absolutely bizarre, but you could definitely see Misa in there 100%. Oh yes. Uh, Most famously though, and most recently, Richter was added as a playable character in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, specifically using his Rondo of Blood design Thank God, not his Symphony of the Night design. Thank you, Sakurai. Yeah, thank you. I kind of hate his Symphony design. That long hair does not look good on Richter. (laughs) Uh, He was announced as an Echo Fighter for the original Castlevania protagonist, Simon Belmont. So, let's get into one of the composers behind Rondo of Blood. Her name is Tomoko Sano. This was a weird one, folks. Once again... For the second week in a row, I picked a composer who has the exact same name as somebody notable in a different field. I'm pretty sure that the Tomoko Sano that we are talking about today is not also a well-regarded military researcher, but stranger things have happened. I will note that most of the information I could find was not translated super well into English, so bear with me, please. I did the best I could. She was born in Narashino, Chiba Prefecture, Japan, but spent most of her childhood on the island of Hokkaido. Does not say specifically where, but says that she grew up there. She began playing piano at the age of four, and once she entered college, she specialized in music composition. And then immediately after graduating, she entered the games industry. I think specifically Konami, but she does not specify, but it would make a lot of sense and she began to work on music and sound effects for games. Sometime in the mid-90s, she left Konami, and a few years later started an Irish music band that toured around various events in Japan. She also began teaching music composition and piano during this time, and her website actually even has a section for private lessons, as well as... She seems to be really into fortune-telling and holistic medicine now. Hmm. Uh, Her website offers horoscope and crystal ball readings, as well as healing crystal sessions, but she also does Ryuteki lessons, which I guess uh, Ryuteki is a Japanese flute often played by priests at shrines, and she also uh, has delved into Indian music as of late. She often goes by the alias Sanopi, S-A-N-O-P-P-I, and I found two Twitters that could be her. One is just her name, Tomoko Sano, and the other is Sanopi, neither accounts have ever been used. So, who knows? Her discography, I I found it very interesting that I could find a scant amount of information on her because she did Rondo of Blood. That's the first time that she was credited as a composer. She also worked on Tokimeki Memorial, which is a dating sim that Iga actually worked on before Symphony. Uh, that was his start at Konami, was he He directed Tokimeki Memorial and then moved on to make Symphony of the Night.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: She also, then after leaving Konami, I guess, did a bunch of work for Nintendo, where she is listed as one of the composers for Irozuki Tinkle no Koi no Balloon Trip, or Tingle's Balloon Trip of Love, which is the sequel to Rosie Land. Uh, she also was credited for music and sound effects in We Play Motion, as well as credited as, quote, sound for Paper Mario Sticker Star and sound effects on Dylan's Rolling Western. She's also, according to Moby Games, credited with contributing to designing maps for the subspace emissary in Super Smash Bros. Brawl. Okay. So that's an interesting change, I guess. Uh, I think she had a background in art because she is also credited on Rondo of Blood as being a member of the visuals team. So I guess. could track. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Unless Moby games mixed up two Tomoko Sanos at the same time, but who knows Uh, for historical development research on the game itself. The soundtrack was worked on by four people who all, went by aliases because this was Konami in the 90s. Uh, a lot of game studios required their people to go under aliases to avoid poaching. We talked about that in Castlevania, where both of the composers of that game had to share one alias, and that's kind of stupid and bad. Uh, but everybody got their own aliases in this one, so that's good. It was worked on by Akira Soji, who went by Akiro Pito. Keizo Nakamura, who hates me with his name, because it's Jigoku Guruma Nakamura, <laughs> which is a mouthful to say. Obviously, Tomoko Sano, who went by Sanopi, and Mikio Saito, who went by Metal Yuki. Uh, the soundtrack of the game takes advantage of Red Book Audio for higher quality sounding music, not the first time that that term has come up on this show. It basically means CD quality audio. There have been a few. Official releases of this soundtrack, three of the game's tracks were actually included on a CD that was given out as a pre-order bonus for the DS game Castlevania Portrait of Ruin, and a two-disc soundtrack was released alongside the Dracula X Chronicles remake. So what does Rondo of Blood sound like, you're probably wondering? Well, let's start with what I kept seeing as one of the most praised tracks uh on the the soundtrack when i was like looking into it we'll start with critical track number 1 requiem This was composed by Tomoko Sano. This is the title screen of the game. It's really simple. Like, it's it's the same lyrics repeated over and over and over again. Like, I'm not gonna lie, that's all the song is. You've heard the whole song now <laughs> from that clip. Uh, but it really, really gives this cool tone to the title screen, that I don't think a lot of games were able to pull off back then. Like, this is honestly really cool for 1993. Like, One-Winged Angel was not even a twinkle in Uematsu's eye at this point. It's, like I said, often talked about as one of the best pieces on the soundtrack. I don't think I agree with that. I don't think there's enough there for that. But it's certainly cool and worth bringing up regardless.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty straightforward Kirie Eleison. Uh translated out to Lord Have Mercy. But you're right. For the vocal quality on a piece in 1993, say what you will with TurboGraphic 16 different format using the CD uh, quality, I'm sure it was a big accomplishment at the time. Simple mm-hmm. piece, but yeah, remarkable for the era.
0: I think it nails the Castlevania tone. It's definitely going for that gothic horror vibe. It's a neat piece to to mention. But let's get a little bit more high energy and get into Critical Track number two, it's Divine Bloodlines. This song was composed by Akira Soji. Now, all the stages in Castlevania Rondo of Blood have, like, these overdramatic titles, sometimes that don't make sense for the level, but whatever. Uh, this is the music for stage one, titled Dinner of Flames. That one at least makes sense because it is the opening level of the game where you are going through a flaming town as it is under siege by Dracula's monsters as Richter Belmont. Uh... This is often, I think, generally considered Richter's theme. It was one of the songs that came to Smash with Richter with a really, really good remix of it. Boy, did it. Uh, It's the song that is used in a shorter version to introduce Richter at the beginning of the game in a cutscene. And uh, yeah, it's a really cool feeling piece. I think it embraces a lot of Castlevania's more rock-centric origins while also having... This really interesting it doesn't sound like a classic Castlevania piece. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean classic Castlevania, you're right, it has a different sound to it, not only with the instruments, but like the vibe that goes with it. I love this piece. Holy cow. Yeah, the Smash version takes up to the next level, but again, the sound quality for the time, this really stands out and it sounds so good.
0: Yeah, and I think it really separates it, it gives you an idea of Richter is not like Simon. Simon was a no-nonsense barbarian dude who was, was going in to, to kick Dracula to the curb, and that's all he was doing. And Richter is 19 years old, and he's cool and witty and young and hip <laughs> and all that. Uh, and I think this, this really brings that across. Thousand percent, yes. Following that, we have critical check number two. It's Slash. This was composed by Keizo Nakamura, not saying his name, not saying it again. Uh, This plays on the alternate stage four, which is called Fortress of the Water Demon. I think this one's a lot more in line with classic Castlevania. This one sounds a lot more like you would expect from the series. In fact, I kind of just assumed it was a rearrangement of a classical piece, but it does not appear to be the case. It is from this game. Uh, I don't think I played this level, but every YouTube comment is screaming about frogs. So apparently frogs are involved? And that's pretty neat. Uh, everything I love about Castlevania shows its face when really tiny enemies are involved. And also the frogs in Symphony of the Night are a pain. So I can only imagine that that sucks. It appears to be... A level that would fit right at home in Castlevania 1. It's like a river or sewer-themed thing, so it makes sense that this theme feels a lot more in line with what the rest of the series uh, was was doing before that, I think.
1: Apparently, while looking up uh, how Maria looks in Castlevania Judgment, the fandom page says that this song is the theme that she is represented by in the game, so interesting go figure and then there's also something weird with like one of the official soundtrack releases where it got its name mixed up with another track called opus 13 so
0: that's something you don't often see yeah that's a little weird Uh, opus 13 is also another one of those tracks that i saw talked about a lot it almost ended up on the critical five but i didn't really have a spot for it and a lot of people talk about it like one of the best songs on the soundtrack I don't agree. It's weird. It's good, but it's weird. (laughs) Meanwhile, critical track number four. Let's talk about Ghost Ship Painting. This song was, again, composed by Keizo Nakamura. It is the music for Stage 5, called The Devil Flies by Night. That name makes absolutely no sense, uh, because this stage takes place on, if you couldn't guess from the title, a ghost ship that isn't flying. But whatever. This is a totally different feel from everything else in the game, though. Like, I really like that this... This song kind of focuses less on being this epic rock heavy thing. And it just has this really catchy groove. It's got this nice bass line to it. And that drummer is just going to town.
1: They're having mm-hmm. the time
0: of their life. I love it. I think this is one of my favorite songs in the game purely for how different a vibe it brings to the table.
1: Yeah. I'd put divine bloodlines as my favorite, but you're right. This is a, this is a second. This is really up there. Yeah. It just sounds different again. You get some tracks that are the, that classic
0: Castlevania vibe, but it's the ones that mix it up on you that really stand out and sound so cool. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why I think that the Symphony of the Night soundtrack overall kind of stands out, is it feels different. And uh, you can definitely see a start to that here. But my personal favorite track on the soundtrack is critical track number five. We're talking Den. Obviously the most exciting title on the whole thing. Uh, This song was composed by Keizo Nakamura. It is the music for Stage 7, which is called Here Now, The Requiem of Blood. Uh, Once again, this feels a lot closer to the series' classic roots. It's Mm -hmm. got this really, really cool organ part. It's this high-energy piece. It's perfect for the final level of a Castlevania game because this is the final level. So, of course, it's the traditional clock tower. Uh, the clock tower with all the gears and there's always the gears.
1: Mm, you can feel that vibe for sure.
0: And also I just really like that at certain points in the song, it has these small references to both vampire killer and bloody tears built into the song. Oh yeah. Like these, these tiny little references like the den and den, den. And, and at some point I think it just straight up turns into bloody tears for a little bit. It's, a very very good song and i think those little references like shoot it up to the top for me it's a good one for sure yeah listening to da 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 da, da. yeah that's that's so cool i never noticed that it it took me a few listens before i noticed it but it's it's very very neat so for tracks on the cutting room floor let me bring a couple because there're two that i absolutely adore these songs but one has its origins in a past castlevania game And the other, I just like it because it's hilarious. Uh, (laughs) The one that I wanted to bring up because I don't think either of us are going to bring up its origin game anytime soon, but maybe eventually, that's Bloody Tears. One of the most famous songs to come out of the Castlevania franchise in general. Uh, it was originally composed by Kenichi Matsubara. This version was arranged by Mikio Saito. This place in stage three, and Evil Prayer Summons Darkness. Uh, it is a remix of "Buddy Tears from Castlevania 2, Simon's Quest. Again, one of the most famous songs in the franchise. I think this is probably one of the best official versions of this song. Personally, I think Smash kind of dropped the ball by mixing it with a different song. Bloody Tears could have been its own track, but it's fine.
1: Mm -hmm. But I like the Smash arrangement a lot better than this, to be honest. But yes, you're right. Bloody Tears is one of the greatest all-time Castlevania songs. I know Vampire Killer is uh, more famous. It's, It's the original, right? But I like Bloody Tears as a song a lot more.
0: I also, I also prefer Bloody Tears. Vampire Killer is good, but Bloody Tears just has this really cool feel to it. I dig it a lot. And then, I have to talk about it. Mary Samba... This is composed by Tomoko Sano and is why I'm so glad that she's the one I picked to talk about. This is the credits theme for If You Beat the Game with Maria. The ending cutscene and this song make me, like, when I first heard them, made me laugh so hard that I was crying. Uh, It's so goofy. What is this doing in a Castlevania game? I don't know. This does not belong with the tone of anything else, but oh, it's so <laughs> it's so good. When you beat the game with Maria, there's a point where at the end of both both characters, Dracula gives this this monologue as he is he's burning because he has been pushed into the sunlight and so the sun is is turning him to ash. And he gives this big monologue, and Richter, of course, like counters with its own with his own short monologue and and Dracula gives his whole "Well, I'll be back, etc, etc thing with Maria, he does his whole monologue, and then she just shouts, "I don't understand what that means <laughs> And then there is silence with a shot on Dracula, just sort of staring at her for a good five to ten seconds, and then he just dies. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's the funniest thing I have ever seen out of a Castlevania game. It is one of my favorite things. It is the reason why Maria might be my favorite Castlevania character of all time. And this song just drives home how absolutely ridiculous it is that she is in this game and also is as powerful as she is. Also, this song kind of sounds
1: like it could have been in Marvel vs. Capcom 2. A little bit. It has that vibe. Yeah. Like some little bit acid jazz Samba. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Would not have pegged it as a credits theme.
0: Yeah. Uh, Richter has his own. That is a lot more like triumphant. You beat the vampire. But this one, it's, it's just goofy. It's goofy. Maria feels like a joke character that the, the rest of the team was not told was supposed to be a joke character. (laughs) And so she has this vibe to her that's just absolutely hilarious. I love her dearly, uh, and I also love her in Symphony of the Night when she comes back as an adult, though she's not nearly as fun in that one. So what will I never forget about Rondo of Blood? It's that. It's the Maria stuff. But I also just really like that this game's not afraid to be goofy. I think Maria's cutscene is, like, laugh-out-loud funny and its execution. and. It makes it really weird to look back on, like, where Castlevania went after this. This being the last one of the classic sort of formula of being a 2D platformer, then it moved to being Metroidvanias and 3D adventure games and all that stuff. Like, it's kind of interesting to think about how different Castlevania would be if it still kept on this track. And I wonder how much influence the fact that this game never released outside of Japan until recently had on that. But I do genuinely think if you like Classic Castlevania, you should, uh, you should give this game a shot. I think it's worth your time. Maybe I'll buy that collection on PS4. Maybe. I mean, Symphony's also pretty good. And like, Rondo is pretty good. So. I'd say it's overall a worthwhile collection, though the fact that neither of those games showed up on that Castlevania collection that came to Switch is a little bit suspect, and I would much rather they have been included in that and it be more than two games, but whatever. It's money, and Konami loves money.
1: Well, when it comes to castles and uh, monsters and birds, Two pretty great games, great soundtracks to talk about. That's for sure. But that will do it for us this week on Original Sound Chat. You can find me on Twitter at Pete Speakeasy. Joe is over at the Dobaga. The video version of the show is on the Rhymes with Asia YouTube channel, also at rhymes with But it's that MP3 podcast version that you want. Hosted by Anonymous Dinosaur at Anondino.squarespace.com. That's where Joe's other podcasts masterpieces is hosted. And you can find our show, and that show, on podcast services all around the globe. Apple Podcasts, Google, even Spotify. And Spotify has the podcast feed with these episodes, also bonus tracks, but we also have the Spotify playlist, where if we talk about a video game track on this show, and it's on Spotify, it's going on that playlist. Joe, we said no
0: Pokemon, because, you know, Nintendo, but what about Castlevania Rondo of Blood? It is on Spotify, because, like, four or five months ago, Konami just, without saying anything, put a bunch of Castlevania soundtracks on Spotify, just out of the blue. I don't remember how I even found out they did it. I just did. So, they're there. It's the one thing they've done right in the
1: last few years. Go go figure. And then we're uh, in production on Best of 2017
0: when it comes to the bonus tracks. Joe, who are we talking about next week? I will be talking about, and I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Weifan Chang. I will be talking about Chris Zabriskie. All right, Joe, let's play us out. I found a Eurobeat remix of Divine Bloodlines. Yeah! I didn't expect to find a Eurobeat remix of Divine Bloodlines, I'll tell you that for free, but I found one, and it sounds right at home in Initial D, and what, was I going to not do it? It is by... YouTuber Dominic Ninmark. It is really fun, so please enjoy that.
1: Thank you so much for listening this week on Original SoundChat. We'll see you next time. Take care.